Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello. Happy weekend, all. We are wrapping up yet another busy week here. It flew by. In fact, I'm still juggling a few things, so keeping this intro fairly short. I do hope that you will enjoy this week's guest, Hans Swildens, the founder of Industry Ventures, a now 23-year-old San Francisco-based investment firm that's managing $7 billion in assets, including $1.7 billion across two new funds. I have always been fascinated by Industry Ventures. When it launched back in 2000, it was kind of the unpopular kid, trying to elbow its way into the venture world. Its first product was a secondary fund, and at the time, no one wanted to talk publicly about selling their shares to a secondary buyer. It was a sign that you were holding distressed assets and were willing to take a discount on those holdings just to get some liquidity. Of course, fast forward, and secondary sales are very much an accepted part of the venture world. It's also the case that Industry Ventures has expanded well beyond that early strategy, raising many subsequent secondary funds, along with direct investment funds, and also numerous funds of funds, which are funds that invest in other venture funds. In fact, Swilden says that Industry Ventures now has stakes in more than 600 venture funds, which is pretty wild. I talked with him this week about some of those stakes. We also talked about why Swildens thinks one of the most overlooked opportunities for tech investors right now center on tech buyouts of smaller software companies. He had to jump off the phone earlier than I would have liked, and I did not have time to talk with him again to finish the conversation. That's what happens when you have a new job, as I do. But I really, really enjoyed our quick chat, and I hope you will too. That's coming up in just a minute. But first, Alex has a short op-ed on AI. Recent reports have speculated that OpenAI's Sam Altman and former star Apple designer Joni Ive are collaborating on a device that uses AI, possibly a phone. As a diehard Apple fan, this news gave me pause. I have always revered the special working relationship that Joni Ive had with Apple, and more specifically, Steve Jobs. The body of work that they collaborated on, the iMac, iPod, iPhone, iPad, MacBook, and parts of iOS, to name just a few, is awe-inspiring. I realized that I was disappointed that Ive would work on a potentially foundational product with someone other than Jobs, and that this reaction was crazy. Ive should have the right to work with whomever he chooses, and indeed he has a large industrial design company that works with many major brands like Airbnb, Ferrari, and yes, Apple. However, Altman's and Ives' rumored AI phone led me to think a little bit about loyalty. Loyalty is something an AI will never feel. It will never feel an obligation to do something based on a prior relationship, an attachment that might make it sacrifice something to help out an ally. In a way, loyalty is irrational. Why should someone commit themselves to another person rather than always keeping their options open? Neither Ive nor Altman are AIs, of course, and both men undoubtedly feel loyal to someone or something, but their new AI device has the potential to deepen our reliance on artificial intelligence and all of the decisions that entails. Will loyalty survive in this age of AI? Will machines see any cause to be loyal or promote loyalty 
Or will all of the ones and zeros compel them to look at the world merely as a zero-sum game? I don't know enough about Sam Altman to guess where he will land on this, but I believe in Joni Ive. He has earned my loyalty from all of the devices he has designed that have given me so much delight. But I am nervous all the same. Up next, Connie's interview with Hans Swildens of Industry Ventures. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Tegas Converge, the first virtual event centered on the world of investor research. When twin brothers Tom and Mike Elnick realized that the research process for investors was broken, they founded Tegas to fix it. Now, the people behind the most trusted research platform are bringing institutional investors together to investigate the state and the future of fundamental research. On November 8th, join industry luminaries like IGSB founder Reese Duca and Daniel Gross, investor and entrepreneur, to dig into the latest research trends and breakthrough technologies shaping the investment landscape. Register today at tegas.com slash SVC. That's tegas.com slash SVC. Okay, so listen, you know that I always love talking to you. You've raised a lot of money. I was going to use a curse word, which I won't use, but $1.7 billion in this market is quite something. So 1.45 for secondary investments and 260 million for tech buyouts. So let's talk a little bit about the secondary stuff. This is like direct secondaries into startups or is this like strip sales? Other VCs are unloading sleeves of their holdings and you're buying them at a discount. Yeah. So we do all secondaries in venture and our partnership agreement lets us act as an LP or a GP or a JV manager. It allows us to do whatever we want in terms of structure. So we look at all types of deals. So we look at direct secondaries and companies individually or portfolios of directs. We look at LP stakes and individual funds or portfolios of LP stakes. We look at continuation vehicles or strip sales. We look at all of them. We look at structured secondaries. So when you think about our secondary fund, we're super flexible, very collaborative, and we're able to do any deal structure and act as just a passive LP or an active GP. And so it's a little unique in the market. There's not many funds that the LPs or the GPs have raised with that structure, but we find it as an advantage because sometimes investments and situations change. And so we can flip flop around in a transaction depending on what's needed from the seller and also from the underlying holdings because sometimes there's transfer restrictions in companies or transfers restrictions in funds. So it's not only just the counterparty you're dealing with, but it's also the individual securities or the portfolio securities, their transferability and how you structure around that. So the whole gambit, essentially. You were doing secondaries before a lot of people. Industry Ventures is now, what, 23 years old? I think you started doing secondaries and then over the years, you layered in all kinds of other investment strategies. Or am I misremembering? 
We did, yeah. So a long time ago, if you don't remember, but I had an office on the same floor as Alex as we co-located with Walden VC a long time ago. And we were an LP in their funds and we bought secondaries in their funds. And we also did some co-investments and secondaries with them that were great. So we expanded our platform not only to have a secondary fund, which it was originally, but also to have a fund of funds that funded seed funds. So we're one of the largest LPs in the U.S. for seed funds. We have over 100 seed funds that we've funded, individual GPs. And then we also added a direct fund strategy that sits next to our fund of funds that does pro rata right investing with the small funds to have them upsize into their best companies, bigger checks. And then we also do direct investing in their companies if that's a better structure than going through a pro rata right fund. And then recently, we entered the tech buyout market about four years ago, doing tech buyouts, mostly in software companies at the low end of the market. And so when you think about our firm at a high level, we've gone into different segments of the venture business that we think were misunderstood, underserved, or we thought that were at the early beginnings of becoming a large market over 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm which is different than most investors in the venture business, right? So we've been pioneering and creating strategies that when we entered the markets, there weren't many people doing it. And so our, our tech buyout two funds, the same thing over again. And our direct pro rata right fund was the same thing in 2016. And then our hybrid fund of funds that we raised in 2009, we actually bought Roland Reynolds firm, oh. which was doing small fund investing at that point. And then we continued it here which gave us the primary capability in the market. That was in 09, so it was 14 years ago. I forgot about that. I talked to him amazingly before that happened. He's still part of Industry Ventures. Yeah, he's a senior managing director here and he owns part of the firm. Great. So Hans, I didn't realize until the conversation maybe last year, the year before, where you told me that you were an LP in 450 funds altogether. Is that possible? Yeah, it's 600 now. <laughs> so crazy. And at the time we were talking about how for years there was a check in your mailbox basically every day from one of the firms. Thanks again to the fact that you were involved in so many. And then all of a sudden it was once a week, once every two weeks, obviously things slowed down. Yeah, for dried up. Our distributions at one point dried up 90%. Is that right? Yeah. It's still off. I would say it's still probably 75% off. From um, 2021? Yeah. So, I mean, distributions are happening, but they're smaller. They're less frequent than in 2021 or, or 2000 or even 2019. And that's just because the IPO market's been closed. Sure. I was going to say, are those distributions coming from secondary sales? Yes. So we've had distributions coming from secondary sales. We've had distributions coming from IPOs that were done two years ago where the GP is still holding the securities. And then if they're on the board, they can't get out of their position, right? So a lot of the VCs last year that had big holdings in a lot of these companies that went public two years ago couldn't sell their whole stake. So they got stuck with selling and distributing up in windows. And since they're a board member or whatnot of a publicly traded company, they can't just dump their whole position, right? So we still have shares of companies that are being distributed to us from prior IPOs. Hans, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't really realize that was an issue. So if a VC sits on the board of a company and his firm has a huge stake, they don't want to dump it all, obviously, too quickly or they'll freak out the market. But their lock-up period is even more onerous if they're on the board? Yes, yeah, they can only trade stock or distribute it in Windows. So they have so, a double lockup, right? They've got a lockup for six months if there is a lockup in the IPO. There was a period when a lot of IPOs didn't have lockups. But those are back. And then there's also the window period because they're an insider, they're a fiduciary, they're a board member. Sometimes they sit on the comp committee and things like that. 
And so there's restrictions around their holding of their securities. This is a little bit of feel from what we're talking about, but do you have any feelings about VCs who remain on the boards of these companies as they go public? Is it worth a trade-off? I mean, obviously they have insight into a lot as publicly traded board members. We've gone back and forth on that over the Mm -hmm. years. And I think a long time ago, we used to think that it was their job just to distribute, right? After six-month lockup and move on. But what we've learned over time is that it's not that easy, first of all. Mm -hmm. And there are certain situations where it isn't the benefit of the LPs to have them be on the board as well as hold the shares longer and then drip the shares out in these windows over time. So between the period of 2010 and 2021, that strategy of dripping or even holding for a long time worked great, right? Because all the public stocks kept compounding and going up to the right. And then the VCs that did hold the securities that didn't sell their full position got caught in 2001 with the drawdown in the public markets in 2002 with massive, massive losses in NAV. We saw NAV go down 90% in some cases. I mean, a lot of this was public information because a lot of their positions are publicly available because they have to file if they own more than 5% of a business and if they're a board member, they have to file their shareholding so you can track all this. But we've gone back and forth on that one. I think it's a case-by-case situation. We like certain companies. We like the fact that the managers are holding the securities and either not selling or dripping the securities out in a good way to us if they're like great companies, compounding value companies, and they Mm -hmm. have proprietary information, which is why they're restricted. Mm -hmm. And it actually is helpful in certain instances. And then in other instances, it's actually pretty harmful because if they get caught in a drawdown year where their stock goes down 75%, they could have sold. Obviously, all those VCs wish they would have sold. Sure. Uh, and for- just to be clear, you mentioned 2001 and 2002, but you're talking about 2021 and 2022. Sorry, I apologize. I've been doing this for so long. No, now. I know. I, I do the same thing. So that's- <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're, we're getting old. 21 and 2022. Yeah. So yeah, right. I mean, obviously, Sequoia got caught with this strategy and it's been well documented how much they could have made if they'd gotten rid of some more DoorDash or some more Snowflake. Yeah, but most VCs were in that position who had large portfolios, lots of publicly traded ones. Sequoia was definitely not the only one. And what's happened this year, though, interestingly, in the secondary market is because these partnership interests still hold some public securities, the LPs that have sold partnership interests in the last year, some of the times those stocks have gone up since the trade. Mm-hmm. The NASDAQ went up 30%, right? So across the board, everything recovered a bit this year. Mm-hmm. And then in some instances, obviously, the stocks have gone down. But in the majority of them this year have all gone up. So when we buy into funds, we also pick up the public stocks that are in those funds, right? Because you just buy as an LP into the fund and it holds all the publics and private. So this year, we picked up a, a large number of funds that had public stock in them that were being distributed in a more dripping manner. And so mm-hmm. this year, we've benefited from some of our purchases of these fund interests that had public stock. That's great. So, and who are the LPs who are selling? I'm just wondering, like, which types of institutions, or maybe it was family offices, who are getting rid of their LP stakes at what looks now like maybe not the best time, but wanting a little liquidity? Well, so the secondary market's so robust, big, that it's every segment of the LP market is selling. Mm-hmm. Endowments, foundations, pension funds, family offices, insurance companies, fund of funds that are winding down, pretty much everyone. 
there's always a need for this. There was during the bull market too, right? I mean, the secondary market's been compounding every year pretty much for, for the whole time we've been in it in terms of growing. And it's all the parts of the market. A lot of it's related to portfolio management today. Mm-hmm. And so if you're got denominator where that means, obviously, you probably know what this means. Yeah. The public stocks and the bond portfolios went down last year. So then the privates got a higher percentage. So then they could trim the privates and then put the money into the publics or into their debt book right. um, to, to redo their allocation percentages back to where they thought they should be. So a lot of the selling is related to portfolio management. What we found is a lot of sellers now are not selling 100% of their positions. They're selling pieces of them. And that's just for general portfolio management. If you were doing portfolio management in 2021 and you sold off a bunch of things, even at, let's say, a 20% discount, most of those have already lost 25 or 50% of their value. So you would have done a good job rotating, right? And so you can't really time this, I think. And yet people also, I think, have a misunderstanding that when someone's selling a venture interest or a portfolio venture or whatever they're selling on the venture side, that they're doing so just to put the money in cash. And most of the sellers are not doing that. They're rotating that into something else. Mm -hmm. And we've seen founders of companies sell to us and take all the money and put it in their next company. Sure. And some of those are worth five to $50 billion market caps now, right? <laughs> and they took our secondary check and put it into the startup. What about you? You have so many stakes. You're actively buying stakes. Are you also selling your primary and secondary stakes to, to other buyers? We do, but we've learned over the years to do it in partial sales. So 10 years ago, we would just sell something and move on and take the cash and buy something else and recycle it in our funds. Our secondary funds, as do our other funds, have 120% recycling ability. Most funds have that, but they don't advertise it. And so even venture funds themselves can sell something out of it and recycle the money and just buy something else and not distribute it. So you can move around your portfolio without distributions to the LPs. And so we do that, but we've learned over time that we sell in pieces of things over time. If we Mm -hmm. want to sell them, if they become too big, we'll sell 5% of something and then maybe 10% of it or something in a similar format that we do in the public markets too. So our firm also doesn't just dump stock after the six-month lockup. That's not something we typically do. So we also hold and then sell over time in a methodology that is dependent upon the underlying position of how we Mm -hmm. feel about it. And so we we have the same strategy when we hold the privates, which is if we're in something and it's gone up 10 times or 20 times, and we feel like, hey, we've got a lot of gains, the investors have made a lot of money, we will, if there's an option, just sell 5% of it or 10% of it. If it's presented to us in a company or the fund is amenable to us doing that, or maybe they even present the opportunity to us, which has been happening a lot as and well. Do you, do you even have time to think about how you feel about things with so many stakes? I'm wondering how automated things are. Yeah, so we've built a pretty sophisticated tech stack here. And so we do what's called aggregation models, and we do so to do portfolio management. And one thing that's interesting in the venture business that it takes a while to get your head around if you're not in it, is the same companies are held by multiple funds. And so what's happened over time is our business has scaled, and we're in so many funds, is we hold the same position in multiple funds. Sure. And then sometimes we'll buy the position directly too, either in a primary round or in a secondary transaction. And then we hold it through the funds as well. So what's happened is over time, as we've bought more, like the last time I talked to you was 450 funds, now it's 600. 
Just in our secondary funds, we have an underlying aggregation of 5,500 companies. We just run our fund 10. And we actually track and monitor most of it in our database, both through doing OCR and data normalization and feeding into our system, as well as we have a BPO that does it manually, as well as our team does it manually, as well as our outsourced financial firm does it manually or automated. And then we have the ability to do these aggregations and understand what our underlying cost is, what our underlying NAV is by company, by fund. And then that allows us to better portfolio manage and we can look at percentages and portfolio construction and understand each portfolio's liquidity profile and need and better manage our own funds, DPI, IRR, and underlying risk and and portfolio. So we used to not do that as much because we weren't as big and didn't have as much scale, but What's happened is we have so much ownership now across so many things, across so many different funds and directly that we have to do these aggregation models and analysis. And we've hired data analysts now internally and things like that as well. Sure. It's incredible to think what kind of a view you have onto the market. Can I ask, Hans, because you've been doing this for so long, you must have some idea. I keep hearing about startups are going to run out of money, especially those that raised at the height of the market in 2021. What are you seeing in terms of fatality? We're starting to see fatality happen. So up until about a year ago, there was at the seed stage and A round stage, there was still fatality because there always is. Mm -hmm. But we're starting to see fatality now, even in these later stage businesses. Obviously, FTX was a big one. And that was across a lot of people's portfolios. But we're starting to see fatality happening more in the VCs getting themselves in a situation where they're looking at doing an ABC or assignment for the benefit of the creditors Mm -hmm. or the wind down of the business. And that's one reason why we have this tech buyout fund, right? Is that we can go into those situations and see if there's an opportunity to buy it out, if it makes sense or not, to help them with that problem and bring in another buyout fund that we work with that we're also an LPN and collaborate with them to see if there's something we can do with operationally changing it or reconstructing it. Or maybe we bolt it onto another business that the Mm -hmm. buyout fund holds in their portfolio, therefore keep the product going and have a multi-product company. And so, yeah, we've started doing more buyouts. And I think in the next three years, that'll accelerate because a lot of the businesses that have got themselves into bad cap structures or levered are not bad businesses. They're just badly financed or badly run, or they just had bad things happen to them and there was nothing they did wrong. They just got caught in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. So I think the buyout funds used to be 2% of the market creating liquidity for all this, and now they're 20. Wow. It's a big piece of the market is having mostly software businesses get acquired by buyout funds or by the portfolio companies of the buyout funds. They'll add on the business, right? Because if it's a 10-year-old software business and it's developed a set of products that are complementary to another set of products that are in another business that's in the same sector, but profitable, they can just bolt it on, right? And there's a lot of that consolidation. I think the whole venture market is going to get more consolidated, both at the GP level with less funds moving forward, as well as at the company level. Yeah, that would seem inevitable. In terms of can I call you back after my next meeting? Sure. Can I ask you one last question? Sure. In terms of what you're looking for or the size of the acquisition, how big are the companies that you're buying? How much money are you investing here? They're done the low end 15 million of revenues on the high end about 50 on the enterprise values of the companies on the low end about 30 and the high end about 250. And that's not all an equity check because there's rollover because some of the VCs roll and some of the founders roll and some of the management team rolls their stock and that buying 51% ownership. And so the actual check size on the equity check is half or or 51% of the value. 
And then if you use debt, that's also part of that check, right? So it's not all equity. Most of the smaller deals that are between like 15 and 30 million of revenue are all cash because you mm. can't, them. but the stuff that has like more than 30, that's generating more than 15% EBITDA, you can debt that with small debt checks. And so you don't need to cough up as much equity. And so it's all over the map. But the fit we've seen so far for our strategy has been with these small software companies that have between 15 and maybe 50 million of revenue. And after that, there's a different market, right? It's more of a mid to upper market opportunity. And there's a lot of buyout funds up market. Right. Like down, Vista. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of funds that want to buy these small investments. We saw the same thing in the venture space mm-hmm. where all the funds went up market and then all these seed funds got created. Right. And we started funding them. And it's the same exact thing in the tech buyout market. So just like we did with the seed fund market, we're starting to fund these small tech buyout funds. So it's a very similar. Yeah. Super interesting. I I know. I got to go too. I'm busy. Okay. 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 All right. I will call you back. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. See ya. That's it. Thanks very much for listening, and special thanks to Tegas Converge. Please check them out at tegas.com slash SVC. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.